0: It's Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. Returning to the podcast for Episode 72 is Jungian analyst and clinical psychologist Dr. Mark Winborn in Memphis, Tennessee. He earned a Master of Science and a PhD in clinical psychology from the University of Memphis and a diploma in analytical psychology from the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts. Dr. Winborn served for three years as the staff psychologist for the United States Military Academy in West Point, New York, and is now a training and supervising analyst of the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts and the C.G. Jung Institute Zurich. He currently serves on the American Board for Accreditation in Psychoanalysis, as well as on the Ethics Committee of the International Association for Analytical Psychology. He sits on the editorial boards of the Journal of Analytical Psychology and the Journal of Humanistic Psychology and is a member of the National Association for the Advancement of Psychoanalysis. Dr. Winborn has presented papers at the past four IAAP congresses and served for six years as training coordinator of the Memphis Jungian Seminar. In addition to his teaching activities in Memphis and Zurich, He has been an invited presenter for Jungian societies, training seminars, and institutes throughout the United States, as well as Russia, Brazil, Denmark, and the Dominican Republic. He is the author of Deep Blues, Human Soundscapes for the Archetypal Journey, published in 2011, and Interpretation in Jungian Analysis, Art and Technique, published in 2018 and is the editor of the book Shared Realities, Participation Mystique and Beyond, which includes essays by speaking of Jung guests Pamela Power, Jerome Bernstein, and Diane Braden. His essay, Liber Novus and the Metaphorical Psyche, Revisioning the Red Book, is included in Volume 4 of Jung's Red Book for Our Time, Searching for Soul Under Postmodern Conditions published in May by Chiron, and edited by Frequent Speaking of Jung guest Dr. Murray Stein and the late Dr. Thomas Arst, and it is the subject of our talk this evening. Please visit the website speakingofjung.com, where you'll find links to everything discussed in this episode in the show notes. This interview is being recorded on Tuesday, September first, two 2020, through the magic of Up Skype. Hi, Dr. Winborn.
1: Hi, Laura. It's great to be back with you again.
0: Thank you so much for returning to the podcast. It is my pleasure to have you again. So, your essay, Lieber Novus and the Metaphorical Psyche Revisioning the Red Book, is chapter 16 in the new volume, volume four of Jung's Red Book for Our Time. The series is published by doctors Leonard Cruz and Stephen Buser at Chiron Publications in Asheville, North Carolina. Doctor Buser was a guest in episodes forty nine and fifty five, and edited by frequent speaking of young guest doctor Murray Stein and the late doctor Thomas Arst, who unexpectedly passed away on april twelfth of this year while working on this volume. You can hear Dr. R. speak about the creation of the book series with Dr. Stein and Dr. Buster, as well as Dr. Lance Owens in episode 49. It was recorded a year ago now, uh, September of 2019, when only three of the volumes were out. So this new volume, as I said, was released in May. It includes essays by best-selling author Dr. Thomas Moore, uh, speaking of young guest Dr. Maria Helena Mandacaro-Guerra, and the astrologer Dr. Becca Tarnas. So how did you get involved with the series, Dr. Winborn?
1: Um, That's primarily through uh, the previous writing that I've done and a friendship with Marie Stein Mm -hmm. that's uh, primarily through the connection in Zurich, but also his previous role uh, in the United States in the CGU Institute of Chicago. So he, he invited me to participate in the uh, the final uh, volume of this series. Mm, and I, mm-hmm. Dr. Arst was the editor for my particular chapter.
0: So in the beginning of your essay... Uh, you say something really interesting. You say that you felt somewhat wary of the excitement that was associated with the publication of the Red Book.
1: Well, I, my personal feeling is that if there's too much idealization of the, founding, uh, the founders of a particular uh, field of study, that that kind of obscures our objectivity about the, the field itself. And so there's quite a bit of idealization, I think, of Jung. Uh, he was clearly an amazing uh, intellect, an amazing soul. Uh, but when we put so much emphasis on the person, it sometimes distracts from an objective examination of the ideas. And there was that characteristic in the psychoanalytic field around Freud for a long time as well, but they've kind of moved through their idealization of Freud, and he's seen certainly as a a luminary in the field of psychoanalysis and the founding father of psychoanalysis, but everything he wrote and said isn't held with quite the same degree of um, awe and reverence that it once was. And so, in in fact, just in the way the self-references that you hear within psychoanalysis— Nobody really refers to themselves as a Freudian anymore.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They, they say, I'm a, a relational psychoanalyst, or they say, I'm a Kleinian analyst, or they say, I'm an object relations theorist, or they have some other name to more closely identify what they do and how they practice. Not so much to distance from Freud, but to acknowledge that the field has developed, and I think we, we're not quite as far along in the Jungian world about creating some of that distance. So that's, that was my concern when the Red Book came into public view and public availability, that it would kind of contribute to a deepening of that idealization rather than um, a kind of a, a little bit more distance from Jung the person.
0: So for some of the listeners that might not be familiar with the Red Book, would you briefly tell us what it is?
1: Um, Basically, after Jung split with Freud in 1913, he kind of went into a pretty serious introverted depression, at times feeling like he was losing his grip on reality. During this time... Uh, he kept an a, a extensive series of notebooks for about three years called what, what he termed. These were all bound in black leather, and he called them the black books. Down the road, um, what he did from 19—so that was 1913 through 1916— And then he stopped writing in the black books, and from about 1915 to 1930, he began to work at extracting the the sections of the book, the black books, his notebooks, that he felt were the most significant, the most relevant to his personal journey. But... He also started adding commentary and um, additional material to the material that he extracted from the Black Books. So the Red Book is essentially a compilation, or you could say an abridgment, of the Black Books. And so there there's sections that are directly out of the Black Book, but then there's other sections that have been elaborated on and commentated on by Jung himself. And now actually the black books, the notebooks, the original notebooks themselves are being uh, published that are going to be released in October of this year, I believe. And so, again, there's almost uh, the same degree of excitement within the union community about the publication of the black books to go through and see, oh, where did Jung get all of the stuff that he decided to include in the red book and what did he leave out?
0: So the red book is this it, it was a mystery it was shrouded in mystery not a lot of people had seen it it was locked in a bank vault for many years and it was released in 2009 and it is still selling today and it mm-hmm. is very large it is quite expensive and it i find it quite difficult to read and understand um but i've i often get asked by listeners about it. And they don't ask me if they should read it. They tell me they want to read it. And for mm-hmm. for people who are new to Jung, I kind of cringe because I wouldn't jump into the Red Book right away. Would you agree?
1: Oh, I, I agree. You, you really need <laughs> right. some overview of Jung's, uh, Jung's main topics. And for example, Murray Stein's Jung's Map of the Soul is an An incredibly readable introduction to Jung's basic concepts and so that's where I tend nowadays to uh, recommend people start Mm -hmm. get a feel for the ideas and then you'll see he doesn't use theoretical language in the Red Book at all he uses images and dialogues that he has with his inner figures Mm -hmm. so it's left up to the reader to kind of see Um, where Jung is pointing towards in his theories, or you might say where some of the theories emerged out of his experiences.
0: But it is also a creative work, and you make that case in your essay. So what is the main theme of this essay that you contributed to this volume of Jung's Red Book for Our Time? You, You suggest a revisioning of Jung's Red Book. What did you mean by that?
1: Well, one, let me contrast it with what many people take it as, and that, that in some way they're going to have a revelation of sorts, or mm-hmm. that it's Jung's re- revelatory process, and that we're going to see Jung's archetypal theory and theory of the collective unconscious laid bare in the pages of the Red Book as personal experience now what i think it is is an example of a deep personal journey that may not have a generalizability to other people Mm -hmm. and so immediately after the red book came out there were all of these workshops and i think some of them are still going on about make your own red book right and to me that's the imitation of jung it's not real individuation we should be on an inner journey, but that inner journey should be shaped by who we are, what our experiences have been, where we're, where psyche, where self is leading us. And so I put it on the same level as William Blake's Marriage of Heaven and Hell and Songs of Innocence and Experience, or Goethe's Faust, or T.S. Eliot's Wasteland, or John Coltrane's A Love Supreme, or the Rothko Chapel created by Mark uh, Rothko or Michelangelo's adornment or of the Sistine Chapel. Any of any number, I could name off any number more, that I think are just as relevant as an example of creative and personal interior journey.
0: You quote Asanushamdasani explaining what is really going on here about how young. Jung sort of modeled it after the red book after the bible and
1: faust and nietzsche's
0: right what you just mentioned and so it is it's sort of up there as this great work but what is it not what is it that so it is that but what is it not
1: um What I don't think that people get about the Red Book and what I really want them to get from my essay and Mm -hmm. from our talk tonight is that Jung is speaking about experience through metaphor, and that it's a document of a metaphorical journey into his interior, and that we all need to do that, that psyche speaks through metaphor. But not just psyche as a spiritual essence, but psyche as body and psyche as affect. And that affect, the body, communicate through metaphor and press into the mind for expression through metaphor. So let me me pause and just give a definition of metaphor Mm -hmm. so that we're all on the same page. This initial definition is from Merriam-Webster. Metaphor is defined as a figure of speech in which a word or phrase literally denoting one kind of object or idea is used in place of another to suggest a likeness or analogy between them. It derives from the Greek words for transfer or transference, which means to change by carrying. As with the experience of the analytic transform, transference, the transformative potential of metaphor depends on the similarities and differences between its components. It uses one conceptual or imaginal domain to map or articulate the experience of a different conceptual or imaginal domain. Therefore, it transfers meaning between domains of experience. And by domains, I mean conscious to unconscious. Cognitive to somatic, or body, body to affect, past to present, or present to future, linking these realms in ways not previously seen. Now, to give a very simple example of a metaphor that we're, we've probably all heard, the ship's prow plows the sea. Now what that does is it takes the image of the prow of a ship going through the water and the similarities to the the blade of a plow moving through the earth. So it links it takes it borrows from the image of the plow going through the earth and transfers it to the image of the ship through the water. That's a metaphor. So It allows, as I said, the use of one domain to map or describe another domain. And all great poetry relies intensively on metaphor, Mm -hmm. as well as, in most cases, many songs like, think of Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven. Well, what are they meaning by the Stairway to Heaven? So there's all sorts of different directions that that could go. Or a poet that I enjoy a great deal, Antonio Machado, has a poem in which he refers to sitting on the rim of vast silence. Now, it it, it requires the listener or the reader of the poem to think about, now, how does silence have a rim and how can one sit on it? Mm-hmm. And yet, intuitively, the sentence still makes sense, even though on another level, it's nonsensical.
0: So you are bringing in the topic of metaphor to Jung's Red Book because you would like it to be, or you're suggesting that it be seen metaphorically.
1: Right, rather than archetypally, mm-hmm. which is how it tends to get interpreted. Mm-hmm that Jung is having archetypal experiences and recording them. And it may well be that he is, but what I think the overarching power of it is that he's speaking in metaphor. Is
0: no one else seeing it that way? Is this something? No, I'm
1: not. I'm not the first, Mm -hmm. but the tendency is not to see it this way. Mm -hmm. There was a a Jungian analyst named Ellen Siegelman, and she wrote a, wonderful book called Metaphor in Psychotherapy back in the 80s that's hardly gotten any attention at all or very little attention. And but the thing is, is I think it um, distracts us from the power of an experience by thinking about it only as archetype. Is this archetypal or not? And where does this archetype come from? And to say that all archetypes speak powerfully because of metaphor shifts the emphasis to the qualities of metaphor and away from archetype. Mm -hmm. So whether it's fairy tales, alchemy, whether it's religious motifs, or whether it's myths or religions, all of these things that Jungians talk about, as archetypal material, all of these things have power because they're metaphors. They communicate metaphorically about certain universal experiences. But it may not be the universality of it at all that's powerful. It may be, and what I'm proposing is that it's the metaphor itself that has the power. If I could just read a passage from Jung that I think supports this position completely. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: He says, this is from archetypes in the collective unconscious. The centrality of metaphor for analytical psychology is clearly stated by Jung. Here's the beginning of the quote. An archetypal content expresses itself in metaphors. If such a content should speak of the sun and identify it with the lion, the king, the hoard of gold guarded by the dragon or the power that makes for the life and health of man. It is neither the one thing nor the other, but the unknown third thing that finds more or less adequate expression in all these similes. Yet to the perpetual vexation of the intellect remains unknown and not to be fitted into a formula. Not for a moment dare we succumb to the illusion that an archetype can be finally explained and disposed of. Even the best attempts at explanation are only more or less successful translations into another metaphorical language.
0: Mm. I remember in school learning about metaphors and similes, and Mm -hmm. a simile is like something, and a metaphor is something. And I never hear anybody talk about similes anymore.
1: Right. Or analogies, which are in in the same related type of uh, linguistic um, process. Mm -hmm. And Jung, you can see, doesn't make a distinction between simile and metaphor in his little passage there either. And then there's the uh, uh, another related uh, linguistic phrase, which is metemonee which is the op- kind of the opposite of metaphor, where similarities and differences are used to uh, reveal something about another domain by referring to a previous domain. A is something that we see happen, for example, in trauma, where something of one person is attributed to an entire group. So rather than opening up, it collapses. So when we say something like the suits, and we're referring to bankers, lawyers, and people in finance, Mm -hmm. we're making a class assumption that actually collapses all of the individuals into one group. Or when we say heavy is the brow that wears a crown, we're making a statement about what it's like to be a monarch Without any of the individual experiences of individual monarchs, so it makes it takes one characteristic and then makes that a statement about an entire group.
0: Why do we do that? Is that something that happens naturally, or is that indicative of something?
1: It well, it happens naturally. Um, for example, if we're and I think it has an evolutionary basis. Mm. Um, this goes into something that one um, neurologist calls fast and slow thinking. I forget the title of the, the the author's name of this book, but that's the title of the book, Fast and Slow Thinking. And he he says that we essentially have two kinds of thinking: one that can weigh out things, that's the slow thinking, and the thinking that comes into to a conclusion almost immediately. So if we see a stranger. In the woods, if we are living in Paleolithic times, we assume that anybody that doesn't belong to our tribe, and therefore looks familiar to us, is dangerous. So that's a matrimony. Or if we go out into the woods and we eat red berries, and we get sick, and there may be many different types of red berries that won't make us sick, but Mm. we still make an attribution about red berries. Now, the thing is, is this happens in trauma and what we see in post-traumatic stress disorder, where there are triggers that remind somebody of a previously traumatic situation. Like, let's say a young girl goes over to her neighbor's house and the neighbor goes somewhere with the mother and she's left alone with the grandfather and is molested. And the metemone she forms in that experience is, I was alone in a house with an older man, that's dangerous. And then 30 years later, if she gets into onto an elevator with an unknown man who appears to be older, mm-hmm. then the matemony gets generalized to that same situation. And there's a threat interpreted or can be. And the person might think that's not safe to get on the elevator with him.
0: So what do we do with that?
1: Well, part of it is uh, kind of the idea of, like, we would call that a complex, Mm -hmm. okay? unions would call that a complex that's been formed around a particular situation with particular characteristics. And if we're not aware of the origins of the complex, we have little capacity to reflect on what we're experiencing. And it's that ability to begin to feel something, to recognize it, to connect it to a previous experience that gives us some degree of freedom of choice about responding. Um, perhaps she says, OK, I'm going to wait for somebody else to get on the elevator with me. And that diminishes the threat enough that it feels tolerable. Mm-hmm. She gets off the elevator oh, nothing bad happened, then perhaps the complex has shifted slightly or a degree of energy has gone out of the complex after making that decision. So it gives us freedom of choice. It gives us an ability to look at the ways we defend ourselves and ultimately gives us greater range of behavioral responses to situations that previously we didn't have much range of response Either emotionally or behaviorally,
0: mm-hmm. going back to metaphor, uh, you say that your main point of emphasis i e that metaphor is the primary mode for the transformation of psychic experience
1: Well, the tendency is to as as a therapist or an analyst it 's easy to fall into the pattern of speaking in language that the ego understands
0: mm-hmm.
1: which is the conscious the center of our conscious thought and our conscious identity and so often that language is couched in logical rational statements what by utilizing metaphor we are engaging the psyche in a different way that speaks more directly to the complex itself rather than the ego Mm -hmm. and that's where transformative potentials become enabled Mm -hmm. is through speaking directly to the complex that's creating disruption in the person's psyche and in their life and so uh, let me give you an example from the uh, from my book on interpretation which also speaks a great deal about metaphor So a woman comes in, uh, an older patient of mine who's a grandmother, her son and daughter are both coming with their families for a visit around a holiday. She comes in and she's worried about her role in mediating what the children watch because her daughter's children are allowed to watch a wider variety of programming than her son's children. So I say to now, this is a person who has a lifelong history of being quite responsible and takes all responsibilities very seriously,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: which has resulted over time in an anxiety condition and a chronic uh, physical condition. So I say to her, is that your job to be responsible for monitoring that? And she says, oh, no, I guess not. That's a relief. But there's no shift in her affect. And I could I could see that immediately that I was speaking to her in rational terms. Mm -hmm. And I made a shift. And I thought of in in my thoughts as she's speaking, I'm thinking about a movie by M. M. Night Shyamalan called The Village. And in the village, there's this group of people and there are watchtowers all around the village that they keep manned at all times because they think there are monsters in the woods around the village that don't actually exist but they've been told they exist by the elders who want them to keep stay inside the boundaries of the village so with that in mind I don't tell her about the movie what I do is I say perhaps it's time for you to come out of the watchtower. Mm. And she immediately breaks into sobbing tears Mm -hmm. and says in a deep guttural voice, I want to. Mm -hmm. So I spoke to her about the same material in a metaphor, and that's what unlocked it. Now, to expand it a little bit, Um, into the philosophy of a woman named Susan Longer, who's a philosopher who develops philosophies about the symbolic capacities of human thought. And she makes the argument, backed up with neuroscience, that largely symbolic thought, of which metaphor is a part, largely derives from affective experience, meaning emotions that are generated out of our bodily experience. And then I also want to mention the, the philosophical and cognitive science work of George Lockoff and Mark Johnson, who wrote a seminal book called Metaphors We Live By. And they make the argument that metaphor is ubiquitous, that we're using metaphor even when we don't realize we're using metaphor, because we have somatic bodily impressions that press on us for expression. And the way they become expressed is through metaphor. So sometimes that's a geographic metaphor. I'm, for example, I'm up today is actually using a geographic metaphor of our relationship to our body. We're above our body. Or I'm down today, which is also in relationship to our body. Or, for example, I'm going to blow my top, or my back is against the wall, mm-hmm. or my head's in a vice. These are you can hear that these are commonly used bodily metaphors, but people don't aren't consciously thinking about. Oh, what would be a good metaphor right. to express this? It's because they naturally generate from the way we process mm. experience.
0: Mm-hmm. So what is the difference then between a metaphor and a symbol? So are if we're thinking metaphorically or are we thinking symbolically, what's the difference there?
1: Well, I would say all symbols are metaphors. Okay. okay? Now, symbols, the way Jung thinks about it, first um, are generated by holding the tension of the opposites good and bad, dark and light, soft and hard, Uh, should I stay or should I go? These are all opposites. And if we have an attitude that can hold both possibilities together rather than splitting them into opposites, like, oh, you're bad. I don't want to be around you. That's not holding the tension of the opposites. Holding the, tempi- t- the tension of the opposites is by saying, oh, well, this person has qualities I like, but also qualities I don't like. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a holding of the tension of the opposites, is to be able to consider both of those simultaneously. Mm. Out of that tension of the opposites, according to Jung, that increases the, the libido going towards this area, activating the transcendent function, which he doesn't really define as—he defines what it does, but he doesn't define— what how this psychological process came into being but it's a psychological process so transcendent function simply refers to out of these two positions comes a new position what he calls the third the transcendent third that in some way is a synthesis of the two previous good and bad we might call good and bad in terms of relationships the capacity to tolerate ambivalence and then there's a synthesis that occurs and kind of a new image of the situation that emerges that kind of replaces the need for those two opposites. And there's a new position that emerges. Often that new, the potential for that new position is expressed in the form of a symbol that either occurs spontaneously to the person, maybe when they're daydreaming, driving around, or often in the case of dreams. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So something will uh, appear in a dream that seems to have a certain emotional intensity, and that's often the thing that becomes the symbol for the person. But Jung says it's not just that it emerges from the unconscious that makes it a symbol. He also said what determines whether something is a symbol or not is the consciousness that perceives it. So for some of our patients and some of us as patients, we can see dream things that are potentially symbols all day long in dreams, but not have the consciousness that can take it in and do something meaningful with it, be impacted by it, be pushed along by it, be pushed forward by it, or be pushed in a new direction. by it. That ideally is what that is what makes something a symbol: is whether it has that transformative power when the person sees it.
0: And not necessarily the case with metaphor; it's different.
1: Right. We can use we can use metaphor all sorts of ways. Now, I think some of those unconscious processes are still going on to generate metaphor or that bring certain metaphors to mind, like I did plan out, oh, I'm going to tell this woman about M. Night Shyamalan and watchtowers, that spontaneously occurred to me. Mm -hmm. Now, and it occurs as a metaphor, but it also became a symbol for her because she remembers it, holds on to it, and periodically refers back to it, like saying something like, yeah I don't want to climb back into that watchtower again. I saw myself beginning to do that this week, and I really need to be keep that in check so that is the definition in a sense of a symbol is it becomes something that she orients to, mm-hmm. and it's still at the same time a metaphor okay. now somebody else, let me give you uh like an example of one from uh another person who, um, let's see, Let me if I can think of one quickly off the top of my head. Oh, uh, a person who had a dream about her. Uh, uh, she was leaving a building, and before she could leave the building, a man in a dark suit stopped her, pointed to the wall, and said, you haven't followed all of the rules, you can't leave. Okay, so this is a dream she has. Now, I ask her for her associations to the dream, what she thinks of when she recounts the dream to me. And she said, well, my father uh, wore dark suits. He worked for a particular in a particular industry that required him to have dark wool suits. And she had a strong, affective connection to these dark suits. And she said, I loved putting my my face into his closet and smelling the smell of these suits. Mm. So not only does it have a visual impact, it has an affective and an olfactory response to it as well. So I know we're in the realm of the father complex, mm. right? But I don't say, oh, that's your father <laughs> complex. Right. What I do is I pick up that image and then I'm able to utilize it in her the course of her analysis. Like sometimes she would experience me in a negative transference and feel like I was being talking down to her or feel like I was being dismissive of her, one thing or another. Mm-hmm. Or she would talk about something similar with uh, a male colleague. And I would say simply say something like, Oh, it feels as though the man in the dark suit is in the room with us again today. Hmm. And then she can relate to that because it came out of her psyche. It's not some conceptual idea I gave her mm-hmm. or it's not a metaphor I thought she needed. It's a metaphor that derived from her emerged from her own psyche.
0: You say that the emphasis on metaphor in analytic therapy is one aspect that distinguishes it from from other forms of therapy, that analytical psychology in particular of the analytic therapies has the most highly refined relationship to metaphor.
1: Right. So if you're trained as a psychoanalyst, you don't spend a great deal of time studying myths, fairy tales, religion, alchemical motifs. Okay, right. So they might study a little bit of that, like they're going to be somewhat familiar with the Oedipus complex or the Oedipus myth from the study of Freud's writings about the Oedipus complex. But they don't spend, I mean, we literally spend a large portion of our training studying, learning about these different symbolic systems, that pro- the, So whether we, whether we realize it or not, we're being trained to think metaphorically. Okay. That's the thing that I think gets left out of the training, and what I'm trying to bring into the training and into the general uh, knowledge in the literature is this is what we're doing, is we're not getting trained in archetypal systems. We're getting trained in learning to uh, communicate metaphorically yeah. and to recognize metaphorical patterns when they appear in dreams or ordinary communication when somebody isn't talking about dreams.
0: Mm-hmm. In your essay, you say, listen below the surface communications of our patients for the metaphors hidden within their stories. And they also demonstrate why it is critical for the analytic therapist to frame interpretations in metaphorical language. And I wanted to ask you about movies and songs and those things that we are so drawn to. Right. If somebody asks you, well, why? If you, you some people are embarrassed to name, you know, your what are your top three favorite movies? Well, I don't want to tell anybody that I love, uh, I don't know, Sleepless in Seattle or something like that. So I have always been curious about, what is going on what's the connection that we're unaware of in our favorite movies and songs
1: well on some level they speak to our uh, our our own life narrative in some way but they pick up metaphor and in some way it's the metaphor itself so even something like a title like sleepless in seattle so right in the title we're So everybody can relate to sleeplessness, right? It's not just a physical act of not being able to sleep. It Mm -hmm. suggests or connotes something of one's mental state of mind that we're agitated, we're bothered, we're preoccupied, we're fixated on. So even this notion, this simple notion of sleepless in Seattle, it locates us in a particular place, but it says something about the mental state or condition that we're going to find ourselves in. And of course, in that movie, it's about uh, the preoccupation with a love interest. Mm -hmm. And that's what's creating the sleeplessness. Mm -hmm. So I, for me personally, I've broadened my net and I think well beyond myths, fairy tales, religion, and alchemy, and I find just as many useful therapeutic transformative metaphor in films that people are going to be actually, in our current age, much more familiar with Star Wars Mm -hmm. than they are with an ancient Greek myth. And I often find I have to spend less time explaining the film to help the person grasp the metaphor than if I explain Sisyphus pushing the stone up the hill. Mm -hmm. And they may or may not be familiar with it. And they may or may not have a strong emotional connection to it. But they might have a strong connection to um, taxi driver or raging bull or something like that. So all of All of the metaphors of film, of song, of contemporary culture even, uh, all of those things for me are fair game in terms of bringing in transformative potentials and speaking to my patients in metaphor. Often I'm much more likely to use film because it's a personal interest of mine, and I think it's going to be more familiar to the patient.
0: There is a section in your essay on neuroscience and Shakespeare that is quite interesting. Would you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, it's really a fascinating story. Uh, a, a Shakespeare scholar, Shakespearean scholar at University of Liverpool named Philip Davis. He he understands it from a scholar's standpoint why Shakespeare's Poems and plays have been so powerful Mm -hmm. and remain so powerful 400 years after their publication. But he wanted to know is there a deeper reason other than just their creative uh, uniqueness? And so he went to the neuroscience department and said, Could you help me with a study? And they designed this study in which they would have subjects. Volunteers read passages from Shakespeare, as well as reading passages from ordinary prose, like the sort of uh, factual stuff you would see in a newspaper article or Mm -hmm. a magazine. And then they they hook them up to an electroencephalogram to measure their brainwave activity and also put them inside a functional magnetic resonance imaging machine, an fMRI. Mm-hmm. Which measures the actual activity of the brain while it's happening, and so in the uh, when the subjects are reading ordinary prose, only one hemisphere, the logical side of the brain, the one that processes more uh, the syntax and linguistic understanding of language, gets activated, and it activates in the frontal cortex, where we do most of our problem-solving, what's called executive functioning, all of our task-oriented stuff. But we're not very emotional when that part of our brain is active. We're very logical. Then when they look at the image of what's happening in the brain when the person begins to read Shakespeare... What happens is the brain becomes activated on both hemispheres, which is what you see in the most creative activity of people's uh, brain activity, is when both the right side and the left side are activated simultaneously. And the center of that activity moves down into the midbrain, uh, where our emotional processing takes place and moves out of the frontal cortex where our more logical analysis is taking place. The way Philip Davis describes it is metaphor, which is part of what is embedded in Shakespeare's language, makes our brain light up like a Christmas tree. Mm -hmm. Metaphor is like rocket fuel for the brain. Now, brain is not synonymous with psyche, but if you don't have a brain, you don't have psyche. It's the physiological correlate of psyche. So that's, so. what's an example of the, the kind of thing Shakespeare would do? He does a lot of odd grammatical shifts, mm-hmm. like making an adjective into a verb, mm-hmm. thick my blood from winter's Tale, or a father and a gracious aged man, him have you matted. From King Lear so he takes mad which is an adjective and makes it into a verb uh, or a pronoun is made in uh, in that one uh, pronoun is made into a noun uh, here's one where the noun is made into a verb uh, he chided as I fathered from King Lear so he's taking these things that on a strict linguistic sense don't make sense mm-hmm. and yet the psyche that takes them in and sees the metaphor and responds with curiosity, lighting up in a very different way than it does to ordinary prose. Now they did similar research, a different group did similar research on sensory metaphor, doing, using essentially the same um, experimental process. And so we have particular areas of our brain called the somatosensory cortex, which process texture and touch. So a brief example of that is: I had a bad day, and I had a rough day. Linguistically, they they mean somewhat in the same; they have somewhat the same meaning, mm-hmm. right? Right. But When we say I had a rough day, our somatosensory cortex lights up just at the word rough, which forms a textural metaphor. So it's using texture to connote a particular mood or psychological state. And our our psyche responds differently to that than it does to I had a bad day, which the, the psyche kind of goes, hmm not very interesting, mm-hmm. and okay. doesn't doesn't move. Right. So I think these kind of experiments that we're now doing uh, in the neuroscience lab are incredibly powerful confirmation, both of the power, power of metaphor, but what Jung understood intuitively from his clinical experience and his readings of all of these archetypal symbol systems, that these speaking in this kind of language does something different to with our patient than we do if we speak an ordinary mm. rational language, for example, like cognitive behavioral therapy tries to do confronting irrational thoughts. For example, they want to get rid of what they term irrational thoughts and say, oh, well, that couldn't actually happen. You're putting that onto the situation. If you would confront your irrational thought, you wouldn't have this anxiety or you wouldn't have this depression. Now I'm oversimplifying a bit for the sake of illustration, but that's one way of illustrating the difference between something that's a cognitive behavioral approach and something that's an analytic approach that tries to get into and understand the processes of the unconscious rather than the, what we're doing with conscious experience.
0: This is really fascinating. And how do you see this being more, I don't know, brought out into the open or incorporated more or being used more? Because this <laughs> I've never really heard anybody frame things this way before.
1: Well, I think I'm I'm not the only one doing it, and I mentioned that Ellen Seligman did something similar at an earlier time. Right, but this uh,
0: link with the Red Book that you've right. made here in this essay.
1: Yeah, uh, Dr. Arts uh, characterized my essay as provocative,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which, which for me was good because I wanted it to be provocative. I want to, ch- not just for the sake of being provocative— But I want to challenge old ways of viewing things Mm. and say, given the development of our understanding from other fields, I think we can safely move the field of analytical psychology along in ways that also will make it more possible for us to communicate with in a more in-depth way with other schools of psychoanalytic thought. Mm-hmm. Often it's actually our theory of the collective unconscious and the emphasis on archetypal phenomenon that gets in the way of the cross-psychoanalytic yes. dialogue. And I think the idea of metaphor is a way of not watering it down, but making it more readily digestible mm-hmm. from somebody who doesn't come from a Jungian background. hmm So I hope, you know, over time that other people begin to get interested in this. I'm I've certainly had a number of opportunities to lecture on this and there seems to be interest in it. And luckily, over time, you know, with the the publication of books and articles and book chapters and speaking engagements, uh, my profile has gone up within the union world. And I think I have a stronger platform to speak from now than I did 10 years ago.
0: Right. And you end the essay by saying, I believe that the direction of analytical psychology could be powerfully influenced if Liber Novus were revisioned as an inspiring example of the metaphorical processes of the human psyche while focusing less on the prophetic revelatory qualities of its content.
1: Yeah, I think that's an excellent place for us. I think that summarizes well my position and... Mm. Uh, what, what the uh, the tension is between the the, the two camps. I, I appreciate your time and interest in the material and for bringing me on for a third time. It's been enjoyable as always, and uh, I appreciate you, the, the latitude you give me to answer in uh, whatever way Psyche strikes me.
0: Thank you, Dr. Winborn. I really appreciate your time today. You're welcome. Please visit the website, speakingofjung.com, for more information on everything that was discussed in this episode. There you'll also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to stream or to download for free. This podcast is also available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. And it will be available later in the week on our YouTube channel. Jungi and Laura. You can also listen to this episode on your Amazon Echo device simply by saying, Alexa, play Speaking of Jung on Apple Podcasts or tune in. Just be sure to pronounce Jung with a hard J. So with special thanks to Chiron Publications, this is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Jung.